good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you wanted to, you may dismiss your kids now uh, to their lesson time. Uh, in the back, their teachers will be back there ready to take them away uh, for their time of lesson and study. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Uh, that's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time in uh, the text this morning. Um, and this is actually the last week of our vision series, as we are calling it here, uh, with basically the goal of communicating who we are as a church, kind of what we believe uh, makes us distinct uh, in our calling and kind of who God has called us to be here in the city of Gainesville, but also to kind of see what we're becoming. I think there's always this reality of both who we are, but also what we're becoming. And so uh, for some of you guys, this is a review. For some of you guys, this is brand new information. You may not know that we value these things, uh, but we are in week four, the first week. Uh, we just talked about how primarily from a foundational perspective, uh, we are about God's glory. We believe that we as a people collectively exist for God's glory, and the reason we gather together as Christians on a Sunday morning or throughout the week together is to come together to pray, to study God's word, and to serve him together in our city, ultimately not to build an organization or the name of this church, but to bring glory to God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Then we talked about the Bible and how we view the Bible as God's very word to us and how it's foundational for what we believe about him and how we live. We believe it's instructional for all of those things. And then last week, we talked about something we call gospel community, and we saw that God's design for his people is to both call them into a group of people, but then in that, in that call to hope uh, in the group collectively as we long for what God is going to do among us. And so if you missed any of those, they're on YouTube, go back and, and watch them. But today we're putting our last two values together. The first one we call the everyday church and the second one we call beyond Aletheia. So let me first give you our definition of the everyday church. Church was never intended to be a building. Church is the people of God on mission with God. God's church does not have a mission. God's mission has a church. Though we gather weekly to sing, celebrate, pray, praise, and sit under the faithful preaching of God's word, this is not the totality of what it means to be the church. The Sunday gathering exists to refuel and recharge the body of Christ so that they can be launched out with gospel intentionality into their organic spheres of influence. Places such as the classroom, the office, the playground, at home with kids, etc. To do this well, we must engage, encourage, and empower people to live out everyday community, everyday pastoral care, everyday mission, and everyday evangelism. And then that second piece beyond Aletheia is we want that reality of the everyday church to leave here if you ever leave Gainesville and go somewhere else. We want you leaving Gainesville ready to be on mission with whatever local church body God has called you to once you leave the city of Gainesville. And so we're going to look at the book of Ephesians this morning. And th this letter is 
really, in reality, Paul's kind of capstone letter on what the church is and what it's supposed to be. He's speaking to this church that he had planted in a city called Ephesus, and he's writing to them to remind them of why they exist and how they are to function inside of the city of Ephesus and why it matters. And what we'll see as we look at chapter 4 this morning, that what Paul really wants the Ephesians to understand is, is this idea of who are we supposed to be in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? What is our life supposed to look like? What are we supposed to be hoping for? What are we supposed to be praying for? What are we supposed to be valuing? All of that is summarized in this letter so that God's church might know who they are called to be. And so if you've ever studied Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the first three chapters are really, really heavy theologically. So there's all sorts of doctrine there. There's things that Paul is explaining to the church. And what he wants them to understand is some foundational truths about themselves before he dives into the practical living side of what that means. And so if you've ever studied this book before, you'll see in those first three chapters, he'll use the following language to describe them as disciples of Jesus. He'll say that they're chosen, that they've been granted sight, and that they can finally see rationally for the first time. He calls them alive now when they were once dead. He calls them adopted into God's family. He tells them that they now have purpose underneath the blood of Christ, and that they've been given strength to tackle anything that God may give them to do. And so those whole, those first three chapters, the entire goal of Paul as he writes them is to communicate to us these beautiful facts and reality of what God has done for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then when you get to chapter four, Paul is going to transition and he's going to move from who God is and who we are in light of what God has done for us in Jesus to how do we walk out the realities of those truths. To put it another way, how should we live? What, is, what does God expect of us? And so I have two goals today. The first one is to unpack the reality of the everyday church and define it as we see in scripture. And the second half, I'm gonna give us maybe some encouragement and maybe some specific ways we can consider adjusting how we live, what we focus on, what we put our time and attention and our values towards so that we might see God's glory increase in the city of Gainesville and even to the ends of the earth. So go with me to chapter four, starting in verse one. I want to kind of build up through all of chapter four so that we might see what Paul is leading us to in those verses that Joshua read for us earlier. Starting in verse one. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
So if you notice, right, Paul starts off this letter in chapter four with a transition. Right? He says, I therefore, right? And that's a transitional statement. Anytime you see that word therefore in the scripture, it should kind of set off alarm bells for you to understand, hey, there's things that Paul or whoever wrote this letter has written before what I'm about to read that is influential or necessary to understand if I'm going to understand what is said afterwards, okay? So another way to put that is Paul's basically saying, hey, in light of what I've just said, here's what I want you to understand. And he says this, in light of our God-given identity, because that's everything that he writes about in those first three chapters. So all those facts about being chosen and adopted and loved and forgiven, in light of that, In light of your God-given identity given to you by Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, out of this reality or identity, live this way. And this is one of the things that Paul regularly does in the scriptures, that he loves to share with us indicative truths and promises about who we are and what God has done for us. And then he gives us the practical living side that is an outworking of that identity. I think so often as Christians, one of the first mistakes we make is we learn some foundational truths. We might even say that we believe that Jesus really did live and die and rise again on our behalf and that we're forgiven and loved by him. But then when we read the practical living side, we forget that that practical living is an outworking of our identity and instead we believe that it is our new identity and we're working to earn God's favor again out of, that, out of, that, out of those works. And Paul says, no, 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 no. In light of what is already true of you, you are adopted If you are in Christ, you are a son or child of God. If you are in Christ, you are beloved. If you are a son or daughter of God, you are forgiven. All of these things are true of you. Therefore, out of those things being a reality, live this way. Live in a manner that is worthy of what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus. And he lists a number of things there. Because it would be easy to immediately say, well, how? How am I supposed to live? How, what, what define worthy? Right? And notice, one of the main things he points out there is he says, eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. See, Paul is quick to remind us the importance that unity plays inside of his church. God's desire is that his family be a family that walks in unity and love towards one another. It doesn't mean we agree on everything. Guys, I have family, I love my family, and we do not agree on everything. But there's still a level of love and intentionality and care and service that comes from being in a family versus maybe even your best friend's. And Paul says, God's desire is that because we are all children of God, because of the blood and body of Christ shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, and because he has defeated death and rising from the grave, we are all under the name of Jesus now. We're a part of God's family now. And that family should be unified. 
And when they disagree, they can talk about it and work through it, but there's still the goal of unity for the sake of Christ. You know, one of the biggest reasons that I think we see so much fracturing inside of the church is because we've forgotten why we exist. If we exist for the, the glory of God and to make much of him, even if we disagree on our individual opinions of practice or doctrine or application, we will say, is there still the possibility that we can be unified and work together even though we disagree in these areas? Because the glory of God is greater than my opinion on this matter. And it takes a lot of humility and intentionality and love and uncomfortable conversations to get to those places. But the call of the body of Christ is that to live worthy of what God has done for us, sending his only son to die on our behalf, that unity would be central to every expression of the Christian church. And he gives here a list of ways that we can work towards maintaining that unity. He says we maintain that unity through humility. It's really hard to fight with somebody if you're being humble about it. He says maintain it in gentleness. Also making it difficult to fight and be disunified. With patience. Again, not shocking. That that might lead to more unity. And then this last one, bearing with one another in love. See, unity is something that takes work, takes humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with others in love towards them because we care about them the way that God cares about them in Christ. And so what we see here is as Paul makes this kind of transition into chapter four, he's saying, friends in Ephesus. And remember, Paul planted this church so he knows the people that will be reading this letter on an individual level. He says, friends, we, we exist for God's glory because we have been given a new family. We've been adopted into the family of God. And because we've been adopted into the family of God, we are unified together under the name of Christ. It doesn't matter what tribe, nation, tongue, socioeconomic background you come from, language you speak, all of us will be one underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are called to live from that identity of being one body, being of one faith, being of one Lord, being of one God and Father. I mean, Christian, I, I, if you're here this morning and you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, I don't want you to leave this room knowing, know, knowing any less than this. You are a child of God. And God loves his children. Parents in here are going to immediately understand what I mean by this. But to be a child of God means that your father delights in you. He loves you. He loves you so much, he sent his only begotten son to die for you and rise again. 
You know, I was reading in Mark chapter one this, this past week in my, in my personal time with the Lord, and there's this brief passage there, but I just found it amazing. Mark, Mark only shares just a couple of verses with us, but Jesus is being baptized by John, and it says that the moment Jesus came up out of the water, the only thing he noticed, there are people there, John's got a hold of him, there, there, there's people watching. The only thing he notices is the spirit descending on him like a dove, and he hears his heavenly father say to him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, the same is declared of you. You are a beloved child of God in whom he is well pleased because of the work of Jesus Christ. You are loved because of what Jesus has done and the grace that he has poured out on us in his gospel. Forgiven, loved, chosen, granted sight. And as Paul says here in Ephesians 4, the beauty of that identity is because those things are true of us, we are able to walk and live in a manner worthy of that high calling that we've been given. With humility, with gentleness, with patience, and with love. And so as we're called to this beautiful family, the church, that is also sometimes dysfunctional, we walk in unity and in love for the glory of God. So he starts out, right, this transition by calling us to live intentionally together. He says, this should be true of the church, that living out of your identity, you live intentionally together. And then moving into verses seven through 10, he's going to say that something that should mark God's people as the church is that they live in celebration together of what God has done for them in Christ. Right, look at verses seven through 10. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, this is a very complicated passage. Okay, but let me start out by saying that verse 8 is actually a quote from Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. And Psalm 68 is a victory hymn. And so in, in the ancient Near East, right, what people would do after a great victory is that they would sing and declare the victory together, declaring what the king had done. It was common for a king to return from a great battle, and the king would celebrate. And when the, and when the celebration was going on, this king would give gifts to those that had uh, performed valiantly or for those that had made the, the battle a possibility. And so as God's people are gathering together what what Paul is saying is in the same way that we gather together to celebrate victory underneath our king when there's a military conquest, that the victory that God has won for us in Christ is so much greater that God's people should be marked by celebration over what Christ has done. That there should just be a joy that emanates from us. Doesn't mean you're always happy. Right? Like, I'm not telling you to fake it. Like if, if life is hard right now, like own that reality. 
But that reality is not greater than the victory that God has secured for us in Jesus. He says that we are reminded to celebrate what Jesus has done. And I I know that this can get lost in the fog of political fighting, uh, however you may be engaging with your school or work or family or health issues. But don't forget the victory that has been won for you in Christ. I mean, we have, as Christians, reasons to be hopeful and to celebrate. He says that the Bible teaches us that all of us were born separated from God and open rebellion towards him because of our sin. And God, in his mercy, sent Jesus to rescue us. And that Jesus lived a perfect life according to the law, perfectly following the will of his Father, and then willingly subjected himself to the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, although he had done none of his own. He was buried as sin was defeated on the cross, and then three days later, he rose again from the dead showing his victory over sin, Satan, and death. He is victorious. And because he is, we are. Guys, I've read the back of the book. I know what happens. God wins in the end. And we, as his people, enjoy that victory with him. And so Paul is saying here, God's people, if they are going to be marked by their identity in Christ together, they should first walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And part of that worthiness is measured by the way that we love one another in unity, but it's also measured by the way that we enjoy God together and celebrate Jesus Christ. God's word to the church at Ephesus should encourage us in unity, but also to live victoriously in Christ. Not based on our own performance, not based on our own success, but no, in the success and victory of Jesus. And in that victory, the church gathers together to celebrate what Christ has done, but also to be on mission together every day of their lives, which is what we see in verses 11 through 16. Look at those with me. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
if Aletheia Church, and I mean that corporately, if we as the church, as God's people, are going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, what we call the everyday church, we need to understand how the church is, is called to function. And what you see here in these verses is a universal truth for the church, that God raises up and gives leaders of various gifts to his church to fulfill specific roles and duties inside of that church. Now, if we stopped there, we would be able to draw all sorts of conclusions from that. But Paul goes on to say why God does that. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're unfamiliar with what that means, here's what Paul is saying. Hey guys, God sent me to reach you with the gospel and to plant a church. And as we've been there, I've sent different people with various gifts to train, to encourage, to equip you, to empower you, to use your gifts for the glory of God. We sent those leaders to equip you, the Christian, the disciple, the saint, so that you might do the work of the ministry, building up the church to work toward unity, to grow in knowledge, to speak the truth and love, which is evangelism and pastoral leadership to one another. See, God's design for his church is that he gives leaders to his church not to do all the work, but to train his disciples to do the work alongside them. What we seek to do here as the elders and pastors of Aletheia Church is to give you a big picture of who God is, his love for you, and his love for the world. And in understanding that through the scriptures, equip you to figure out what your gifts might be to the kingdom of God so that you might use those gifts, discovering them with friends and, and in, in relationships and in gospel community and in using those gifts throughout the body of Christ so that together we might exercise all of those gifts as the everyday church, reaching our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, anyone with the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Not needing to do that at a church service or a special event or a crusade, but by simply just living out our lives with one another for the glory of God. In community, providing pastoral care to one another, providing uh, opportunities to share the gospel with others, and doing that evangelism together. This is God's desire for us. You know, one of the great joys of, of, of being a pastor here is that um, the person who is my one, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, is the ways in which my gospel community has helped me serve him and his family in various ways. To where they love our church. They don't come. I hope they will someday. I hope they'll walk faithfully with Jesus. But the beauty is, is I can only do so much with him. I only have so much time. I only have so many gifts. But collectively, the men and women in my gospel community have loved on that family and they know that they are cared for and loved by us with opportunities to share the good news of what God has done for them, for his wife and for his family. See, we are called out as God's people, adopted, loved, and put into his family 
And that family has a mission to tell the world and each other the beauty of what King Jesus has done for us. We are called to gather together to remind one another of who we are in Christ and to tell those who do not yet believe what Christ has done for them so that they might believe. And so I said that the first half of what we were going to do this morning was going to be a breakdown and a call. So hopefully we see that now that, hey, this is this call to live this way intentionally every day of our lives, not just on Sunday mornings, not just at our gospel communities, but every day of our lives is marked by this reality that we live with intentionality. And that gospel community exists so that as we come together, we encourage one another with these gifts, working together to use them. I just want to share four keys to living out this calling as the everyday church of things that I see, right? The first one is just a reiteration of what Paul has already been sharing to this church in Ephesians chapter four, and that's this. If we're going to live out our calling as the everyday church corporately together, we must know our identity. And I don't just mean you personally, I mean we collectively as a church must know who we are. That the gospel is what gives us our identity and purpose, I mean, think about the guy who's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus. He's a guy by the name of Paul, if you're unfamiliar with him, right? Acts chapter nine records for us his testimony of how he became a Christian. And it starts out by saying that as he was on his way to Damascus to imprison and murder Christians, the resurrected Jesus showed up to him, blinded him, And called him from death to life. And this guy Paul went from trying to destroy the church. And finding his identity as a leader. And contemporary in Judaism. To planting churches all across the Mediterranean world. That was the transformation he made. And that identity is one that he's happy to live in. Look back at verse 1. Notice what he calls himself. A prisoner for the Lord. I mean, think about that. Could you imagine like someone introducing yourself themselves that way? Like, hi, I'm Kevin, I'm a prisoner. Prisoner to what? To, to Jesus. Yet Paul just willingly accepts this identity. And he's saying to us, the same is true of us, that we have been given this identity as a follower of Christ and we have been called in the same manner that Paul was called, chosen by God, called by him, loved by him, forgiven. If we're going to live out this calling, celebrating, walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given, equipping one another with our individual gifts, then working together so that more people might know who Jesus is, this means that we, as God's people, must know who we are first and foremost. And as we pastor one another, we remind one another not to allow the cares of this world and the suffering we might experience in this world to cloud the fact that because Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, we have an identity. And that identity is what I said to us earlier. You are a child of God. And nothing can take that identity from you. Nothing. It is an adoption made with a no-take-back clause. 
If you are chosen by God the Father in Christ, you cannot undo it. God promises that you are his. And with that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we become ambassadors for Christ. Making appeals to others to follow him and walk with him the same way we do. And I don't know if any of you guys know what an ambassador does. That is a 24-hour-a-day job, seven days a week throughout the whole year. So this year, 366. Some of you guys didn't know it was a leap year, did you? Meaning that to be the church, right? this isn't something we do for a couple hours, and that we compartmentalize these various areas of your life. It means that God is doing work in every area of your life. He wants you to represent him in your classroom. He wants you to represent him in your home or in your apartment. He wants you to be his ambassador at your CrossFit gym or on your intramural sports team or on your local slow-pitch softball team. In your neighborhood, he wants you to be his ambassador. When you go to, to family time over the holidays, he wants you to be his ambassador, calling you to that. When you're gathered with friends playing video games, he wants you to be his ambassador. When you're scrolling your phone mindlessly, he wants you to be his ambassador. That there is nothing that the reign in the kingdom of God does not touch. And we live that out of the identity as his children, reminding one another of that truth and encouraging others to walk in that. And then in recognizing what this call is to walk worthy, to walk in unity, to celebrate the goodness of what God has done, and then to equip one another and then share the good news with others. The second thing we need to know is that God is actually the one who equips us for this mission. God calls us to it, but then he turns around and promises that he's gonna give us the ability to live it out. Look at verse seven. But grace was given to each one of you, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's like, hey, I hear some people so often, like, I don't feel confident. I don't know how to talk to my friend, or I don't know how to love one another. It's like, good news. God thinks you've got it. He's given you all you need. Right? Look at what he says further down in verse 12. That he gives us one another to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Right? Paul promises the church at Ephesus there that both in the dispensation and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that come from him, that indwell the believer, and in collectively in community, God is giving us all we need to successfully live out this mission together. We don't need anything else, right? The logical progression here is if God gives gifts to his people and he gives leaders to his people to train and equip them, then you have a task and a job within the body of Christ that God has uniquely equipped you to do. Do me a favor. Look to the person to your left. Now look to the person to your right. I know it's weird. If you're all looking left, you're not looking at one another, right? Make eye contact, right? Smile, say hey. Thank you for humoring me. Now I want you to do something for me. I want you to look to the person to your left or to your right, and I want you to look them in the eye and say, I need you. 
Okay, a little, little bit of a weird exercise, right? Here's the deal, though. We need one another. Right, if what Paul is saying here in verses 11 through 16 is true, we need one another. That we can't actually function properly if we're not encouraging one another to use our gifts. I mean, look at the imagery that he uses there. He talks about a body. He says the head is Christ, but the rest of us are joined and held together at every joint and we're equipped. And when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right, this means that, you know, not everyone's going to get to be a right hand. Right, some of you guys might be a left knee. I don't know, right, in this illustration. And I don't even know if that's a good or a bad thing, right? So often we think about our gifts and we compare them to others and we covet. Instead of recognizing, hey, maybe God knows more than I do and I have a unique role to play in this whole thing. You know, I was thinking this past week, Jeff Moody was sharing a story with me. Where's Jeff at? I know he's in here somewhere. Jeff and I were just talking about this reality of what it means to be the body of Christ and how each of us have unique gifts and roles. And he was telling me a a, a story of this this church where the church was doing great and there was, it's recorded in scripture and then there's a, a woman whose sole role in that church, it seems as is recorded in scripture, was just to make clothing for the poor and the homeless. And when she died, it was such a hit to that church that they struggled for a season. Now that person rarely gets noticed from the front, rarely gets run to for advice on theological matters or pastoral counseling. And yet in scripture it's recorded that her role and gifts of service and hospitality and love towards others were so important that when she died, it was a major blow to that body of Christ. I mean, look at the gifts that are listed here. Hospitality, mercy, serving, generosity, evangelism, leadership, faith, prayer, administration. I have like two of those. And the second one, it's not even that great of a gift. It's like a kind of gift. God gives different gifts to each of us and as we gather together and use them together, that is where we make much of Jesus together. So let me encourage you here for just a minute. If you've been here for a while, or maybe you haven't, maybe you're a newer Christian and you're like, I don't know what my gift is. The best place to discover that is inside the body of Christ. We can help. If you feel like you, you aren't helping or you don't know how to help, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the other pastors. Talk to the leaders of your gospel community. But what I'm probably going to tell you to do is, who are your best friends and what do they know about you? Because they probably know what your gifts are. And they're going to tell you what they are. They're going to encourage you to use them. 
And this is why gospel community is so important because as we learn more about one another, know more about one another, we can then encourage one another in what God has uniquely called us to do inside of his family and kingdom. And then we get to use those gifts together to build up the church so that we can make much of Jesus together because he is worthy. And so if we're gonna be the everyday church, telling more and more people about Jesus, declaring the excellencies of who God is for us in Christ, we need to know our identity. We need to know that God equips us for mission together. And then we need to, we need to pursue maturity together. Right? Look at verses 13 through 16 with me again. Until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth to one another in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, Here's something to understand. Your maturity and growth in Christ isn't just for you, it's for your friends and brothers and sisters in Christ that are sitting in here around you this morning. It's so easy to think that our, our walks as disciples of Jesus are individualized personal experiences, and they are, but they have a strong community aspect and component to them. your maturity and growth in Christ will be used to positively and in, impact brothers and sisters around you. And the same with them. Paul says, from our identity in Christ, we should be growing into mature manhood, no longer being children. I think about Proverbs 9, 6 here. Solomon says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. That's what the church is encouraged to do with one another. Leave your simple ways of forgetting about God's love for you and instead live with insight with his people. This means we need to know our Bibles, we need to know our God, we need to know our gifts, and then we need to serve one another and love one another well. Not lording it over one another, but encouraging one another in love the way that God encourages us in Christ. And then last, if we're gonna be the everyday church, I think the last thing that we need to realize is that we need to believe that God's church on mission can change the world. It's happened before, and it can happen again. You remember back in verse one of chapter four, Paul says, I therefore, and then he goes on to call himself a prisoner of the Lord, right? And I told you we always need to know the context of what he's talking about. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21 of chapter three. Now to him, that's God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all 
generations forever and ever. Amen. God chooses to use us, the church, to display his power, his glory throughout all generations of life on earth in Christ Jesus. We get to expose others to the greatest news the world has ever seen. That God came and died for us so that we might be forgiven and loved. And God gets all the glory for that. But what we want to do here in Gainesville on the campuses of the University of Florida, at Santa Fe, and throughout the entire city, and then beyond Aletheia. Now, I'm wearing our Church Planting Network shirt this morning because we believe that church planting is vital in this mission to seeing more people reached with the gospel. But what we want to do here is believe what Paul says is true in verses 20 and 21. He is able to do a Abundantly more than we think. And he does it according to the power that is at work within us through the Holy Spirit. Guys, I, I, I have this crazy thought. I actually think the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform people's lives and transform the world. You want to know why I believe that? Because it's transformed mine. I've seen it transform families. For those, for those of you guys that were at the men's retreat this weekend, just hearing Dr. Parker's story alone was worth going. For those of you guys that didn't go, you missed out, sorry. Sign up next year. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms people and as people are transformed he transforms the world this means that God rescues broken families he rescues broken friendships he rescues broken lives that are torn down by addiction or fighting and then he builds them back up in the image of our savior to his glory And so the question we, we have to ask ourselves is, do I believe that? Do I believe that God is going to do what he promises to do, which is abundantly more than I could dare imagine? To break me free from my sin, to empower me to share the good news with those I love so that they might know what Christ has done for them as well. Am I gonna pursue maturity with my brothers and sisters in Christ as I discover my gifts, live in gospel community, be in God's word, repent of sin, and rest in my identity as a child of God? Knowing that God will be faithful. I wanna leave us with the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. In Acts chapter one, verse eight.
He's about to ascend back into heaven at the right hand of Father. And look at what Jesus says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's local. In Judea, that's like the state. In Samaria, that's like countries around us. And to the end of the earth. Friends, this is true of the first disciples. And if you are in Christ this morning, it's true of you as well. And collectively, God calls us together to celebrate his faithfulness and to live on mission.